Coming up on Tech Nation, many of us have heard of and some have experienced HER2-positive breast cancer. But did you know that cancers, which are HER2-positive, can be anywhere in the body? Dr. Patrick Yang is the chair and co-founder of Acepedia. They're working on addressing HER2-positive cancers wherever they may be, and they've just dosed their first human. And how many of us are either reading books these days or writing them? Award-winning writing coach Joan Gelfan has something for both of these interests. She'll tell us how to write that book and also about her latest novel, Extreme. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five. With Moira Gunn, this is 5 Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Harvard professor and experimental psychologist Steven Pinker, the author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He writes... In every era, the way people raise their children is a window into their conception of human nature. Well, when people believed that children were possessed by the devil, they uh, had to beat the devil out of them, quite literally. And you had uh, high rates of corporal punishment of children. When you have a different conception, that children are uh, blank slates written on by their parents and culture, then childhood is filled with lessons for moral improvement and uh, constant stimulation. When empathy is considered the cardinal virtue, then you've got to raise the empathic child. So... uh, I introduced that, uh, that, that that observation after I heard a, a mother admonishing a fussy child who's picking on his kid sister. Empathy? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I take that as a sign of the times of how empathy is now valued as the uh, one of the cardinal virtues. We've understood this in, in science about how we thought blood worked this way and it worked that way. (laughs) What were the laws of physics? All these kind of things that we didn't know. But it never occurred to me that we've actually had this perspective of what human nature was like. And that, in fact, that ended up affecting everything else. That's right. And the uh, there is a romantic conception of human nature that we're naturally cooperative and peaceful. If we could only return to a state of nature, the world's troubles would melt away. It's our institutions that have made us more violent by defining private property, by uh, setting up laws and then enforcing them. The overall sweep of history, I, I think, goes in the other direction, that, in fact, our species... Uh, has always been violent for as long as we've been human, that there were, in fact, far higher rates of violence in earlier periods when we uh, lived beyond, without states, before states were invented, or in parts of the world that lived beyond the reach of states, and that human history has very largely been a, uh, a process of keeping our devils under control, and that our institutions have made us less violent. So it, it's not neither that human nature is... Uh, innately peaceable. Our ancestors certainly weren't. Nor is it that we have an innate thirst for blood, a violent brain, you know, killer ape DNA that dooms us to violence forever because we do have cognitive mechanisms that are over the long run clever enough to figure out ways of uh, inhibiting violence. And the course of human history is we've been getting better and better at doing it. 
It's really very interesting. I was thinking there's a, a person that we all work with, a colleague who came from a very distrusting family and uh, with two boys. And when it came to, say, a single piece of cake, um, it was one cuts, the other picks. Instead of who needs to get what done and who could do it, it was like, well, we're going to measure how, <laughs> and then somebody else is going to pick it. We're like, where did this all come from? You're screwing everything up. <laughs> so. Well, you know, one divides, the other picks is an excellent example of how we think of conflict as a problem to be solved. We take into account a feature of human nature, namely people tend to be biased in favor of themselves and they don't realize it. They always think they're doing the right, just uh, thing, but uh, any But they've explained, party, explained it in that way, but in fact, yeah. it works for them. <laughs> it always, exactly, it works for them. And so if you just have the rule, one divides, the other chooses, then uh, even if people are selfish, you'll end up with a fair outcome because if the divider uh, hopes to get the bigger piece and divides it unevenly in anticipation, it'll, it'll just end up worse off. And so no one has to be particularly noble or angelic. We've just used our ingenuity to come up with a scheme that will reduce conflict even with our flawed natures. And so I think that's a very good encapsulation of what's happened over the course of human history. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with experimental psychologist Steven Pinker, the author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He remains the John Stone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, and in 2016, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it's one thing to work on a treatment for cancer in the laboratory or in animal studies, but how much nerve does it take to treat your first human? Dr. Patrick Yang, the chair and co-founder of Acepedia, takes us through the original idea, the invention, the testing, and now they've just dosed their first human. Then award-winning writing coach Joan Gelfand joins us to help us write that book we've been working on, or at least wanted to write, and to take a break with her latest novel, Extreme. And now, Dr. Patrick Yang. Well, Pat, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Now, you've worked on vaccines for years, and now in everyday conversations between people, and certainly in mainstream media, there's great hope and a lot of short-term time frames with regard to a COVID-19 vaccine. But let's gain some insight into what it takes to create a successful vaccine. What's been your experience? Sure. Thank you for that question. So I actually cut my teeth in manufacturing at GE, and then Merck in New Jersey recruited me. And I was there for 11 years, and we made medicines and vaccines. And uh, based on my experience then, this is in the 90s, we had, during the, the time I stayed there, we, we launched three vaccines, and with another one in the pipeline, which became later pretty big. Uh, and uh, it typically takes more than a decade 
from discovery to approval and launch for a vaccine. And even catch us counting from the day you go into clinical trial until deployment, it's typically six to seven years. Vaccines just need to be developed very carefully because you're going to use it in hundreds, million, or in the case of COVID-19, billion people. You have to apply rigorous sciences to assess the safety. The vaccine has to be safe and it has to be effective. It also has to be durable and has to work in most, if not all, ages. That takes time. So now we're trying to do it in 12 months. I know some of my friends in this industry are working night and days, and I appreciate that. Uh, but I still think that we need to be cautious to have a really effective vaccine that will save lives and stop this virus. It's probably, we're probably still nine to 12 months out. And uh, we shouldn't feel comfortable that, oh, the vaccine is around the corner. We're going to have it by year end. We'll probably have one or two by year end, but it won't be that effective. It may work for half the population. And it's certainly, we can't tell about durability if that much time has not gone by. (laughs) Exactly. So at Merck, uh, as I recall, typically phase three, you you would test a vaccine on tens of thousand subjects. Uh, up to uh, 90,000, 100,000 over a few years. The fastest one they ever tried was Ebola virus uh, vaccine, which took uh, five and a half years. So if we get a good vaccine, just meaning that it's, it looks like it's got something and it's, 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 it's not harmful, then we can actually all take it, but we have to constantly be checked to see, is it durable? Yes. So first, I, I would just remind everybody that a really effective vaccine might not be available this year. So we have to do what we have to do to fight this virus without the vaccine this year, in year 2020. And that is just wear your mask, keep your social distance, and wash your hands. That's so basic. We have to do it. Don't think, don't imagine that that something is going to come around the corner with an effective vaccine for most people. There may be one that just won't be effective for everybody. The one that we need that that would be safe and effective and durable, it's going to take time to, to be tested, and it's most likely going to be summer 2021. So approaching this today with... We want a COVID vaccine. What corners can we cut? So we, we shouldn't cut any corners. I, I'm speaking with you with a heavy heart because I'm sad, angry, but at the same time, I'm also hopeful. I'm sad and angry because we, we haven't handled this virus very well as a country. So what the government does matters, and uh, what the public uh, do matters. So we... Here we are, we're the most powerful nation on earth, and and we're here in San Francisco. This is the technology mecca of the world. We have the best healthcare, the best high tech, but we don't have good public health policy and practices. So I, I just think that we need to be realistic that for a good vaccine to come, it 
going to take time. I know we can do it faster this time for a number of reasons. Number one, there is regulatory flexibility. So the FDA is actually working both as a regulator and an advocate. That's really good, really impressive. Second, clinical trials are getting done much faster than the old days because people had the sense of urgency. You get volunteers instantly. Number three, we're doing at-risk manufacturing, meaning we begin to produce the vaccine even before we get any clinical data. So when the clinical data arrives, then we, we know that it's safe. And if it is safe, then you're almost there. Then if it's somewhat effective, the government will probably allow us to launch it. And at that point, you actually have your stockpile there. Because right. once you started doing your trials, you started manufacturing. Right. So in a sense, another aspect that could be different is that instead of having all of this regulation with the FDA, long-term trials, we made it, everything is safe, so then we can then take it to right. the public. So once it is safe, once we're confident at some level that it's safe, and we let it out into the public, in a sense, the entire public is participating in a, in a big clinical trial. It's become part of the trial itself. We must have that realization that vaccines will be used on billions of people. And I'm part of a team, a genetic Roche, that developed oncology cancer drugs. It's very different when you develop cancer drug because that drug is going to be used on annually, maybe 100,000 people, patients, who are dying. The risk profile is very different. So you then have a product to rescue this patient. You will take some risk. That risk may, be, may happen one in a million times, but you're only applying your drug to 100,000 people a year. Your risk is controlled. Vaccine is different. Overnight, you're going to be dosing 100 million people a month. You're going to dose 2 billion people a year. If there's an event that happens one in a million, you're going to see 2,000 events. So, yes, you're right. We have to be realistic that we can only test so much, but we still need to, we cannot cut corners in testing that vaccine in phase three. Even though phase one is supposed to be safety, but even in phase three, you need to be a very large trial in order to uncover anything that we don't know. We simply don't know what we don't know. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Pat Yang in a career with such firms as Juno Therapeutics, Genentech, and as the head of global operations for Roche Pharmaceuticals. He is today chairman and co-founder of Ace Podia. Now, all things are not COVID. We still have life as we knew it before. And so let's turn to your newest venture. You're the co-founder of Ace Podia. What does Ace Podia do? So the the name Ace Podia actually has the meaning of ACE Podium, which is a platform. So we have a platform of ACE, which means antibody cell effector. So antibodies have been used to treat cancer and other diseases. They will track down the disease antigen and bind to it. So when we use that as our GPS, our global position system, to guide 
the drug, in this case, we use living cells as drugs. We use NK cells. NK means natural killer. It's in our body. It's part of our white blood cells. So human white blood cells are actually quite sophisticated and amazing. It's a it's, a, it's not a simple, homogeneous set of uh, warriors that fights for our health. It's a collection of armed forces. It has branches. It has the, the what's called the T cells. It's the kind of immune cell. It's also the NK cells, if other cells. It's the combined armed forces that help us defend our body against any invaders. So we, Aspodia, developed a very unique technology that links, that com- connects the NK cells to the antibodies safely and, if, and if effectively. So the antibody is then works like GPS. It guides the NK cell to the tumor, and the NK then 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 uh, kills the uh, the tumor cell, the cancer cells. So when you said platform earlier, you you're really talking about it's this unique technology which can join the antibodies with these natural killer cells, these NK cells. And we frequently say platform and we say, well, it's a unique technology, but we can use it this way or we can use it that way or we can use it this way. And we have a whole lot of different NK cells, right? Exactly. My co-founder, Dr. Sonny Shaw, studied for his Ph.D., uh, and uh, finished it in 2011 after five years uh, in chemistry and uh, molecular cell biology. He invented two things. One of them is this linker, this thing that combines the, the living cell with an antibody. And uh, he has a very clever, simple, elegant solution. He took a, a DNA, as, as many of you know, uh, a DNA is a pair of a double helix. Uh, it's like a spiral. And he took a part of that attached to uh, the antibody and the, the other part, so-called the complement part, to the living cell. And they were then combined naturally together. Because the DNA is combined naturally right, together. because the DNA wants to be together. The double helix wanted to be together. It's like one hand picks up one thing and the other hand picks up the other and, and you're you connected. And you pull them in, right. You're so connected. that's one proprietary technology that he developed. And uh, the IP, the patent, belonged to the university, so we licensed it from the university, even though Sony invented it. The second one is this NK cell. We use NK cells, but our NK cells is unique. There's so many different types of NK cells. We carefully picked one out using our proprietary, proprietary technology. This one we picked, we can use in anyone else, not just the patient himself or herself. So that's our off-the-shelf NK cell. And then with our get antibodies such as Herceptin, which has been developed and marketed by Genentech to treat HER2-positive breast cancers. So HER2 is the kind of protein that's expressed by a subset of patients. And uh, some people may be surprised, oh, so is this only for breast cancer? Well, actually, no. There are many tumor types that express her too. Breast has happened to be breast cancer happened to be one that we also find them in ovarian cancer, in colorectal cancer, in gastric cancer. 
Uh, and uh, we had uh, the great news is that we just treated our first patient in Houston, Texas, at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. It was a 57-year-old patient man with salivary gland cancer, which expressed strongly HER2. And, and this has been day six. It's just so exciting. Everything so far so good. So your NK cell is then linked or bound to the antibody, which is after the same cell. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it basically brings it together. Right. So the, the two technologies, if I get this straight, one technology is to bind the NK cell to the antibody. And the second technology was picking out which of the NK cells Mm-hmm. You're exactly. you're going to want right, and so yeah. you're after it. <laughs> and and the third technology was invented by somebody else. It's a commercialized antibodies by pharmaceutical companies, and we could buy one vial and use it on thousands of doses. So you could say anybody's antibodies fine, and we got all these NK cells, and we'll bind them, and. You have a drug. That's why we call it a platform. You could do it over and over again. We're looking at uh, four or five more drug candidates uh, using antibodies that have been approved, such as the now famous checkpoints antibody, the PD-1. So we believe that would also bring us closer to the tumor, and the NK cell can can work and, and kill the, the cancer cells. We are working on a few other antibodies that would treat leukemia, lymphoma, and uh, other blood, uh, liquid blood cancers. Now, let me ask you this. This is a a part of the thinking that I'm not very familiar with, and I'm sure many people are not, is the first time you're in humans, that's what just happened for you at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. How do you approach the first time you're going to put something in a human. How, what's, what's the idea there? How do, you, how do you lay it out saying we think it's going to be okay? What do you do? So we've done, so Sonny, after his Ph.D. study in 2011, he continued to work on these for five years. And uh, he called me in 2016 and uh, we're supposed to have a 15 minutes call introduced by a mutual friend because I was an experienced uh, biotech uh, uh, leader and he's a, he's a great scientist and he thought that we should talk for a while. And we ended up talking for three hours. So at the end, we decided to found a company, Ace Podia. So then we founded the company in 2017. It took us three years of preclinical work. So we studied it in, in animal models, and we studied it in vivo, in the living uh, animal, to be sure that it is safe in animal before we, we use it to treat a human. This wasn't an easy decision. In the end, what we decided was to follow the science. We, we didn't pick the one that has the highest profit or the biggest market. We picked her two because this is the one that we understand how the cancer cell behave. Uh, I have worked on Herceptin and a, and a couple more HER2-based therapeutics. I understand how that work. 
And in solid tumor, you always have this micro environment, which means that the tumor built up their defense uh, barriers uh, around them. So to treat cancer, to, to get rid of cancer cells, you have to infiltrate that microenvironment. And we, we know scientifically that Herceptin or HER2-targeted antibodies have worked e very effectively in penetrating that. So we're we following the signs and picked this one. This one is very crowded. There are many, many treatments already. But we said, well, let's pick this one, demonstrate that it works, and then very quickly move on. If it works, then we move on to the next one um, and, and the next five, maybe, maybe the next six. And how did the candidates come forward? We have one gentleman here uh, currently in Texas. How, how did he become number one? So I have worked in this biopharmaceutical industry now for 30 some years. I always think that the clinical trial patients are our heroes. They are our heroes. We, we can only try product candidates on patients that run out of option. Uh, if there is a treatment, there's a standard treatment, we cannot replace that standard treatment with our new drug because the new drug is unproven. It's only theoretically work with animal data. And to translate the animal data into an effective drug for human is still a long way. And safety is a, is a big concern. Efficacy, obviously, is not a concern. We pick patient very carefully. They had to be what we call refractory, meaning that they've, been t they, they, they've used chemotherapy, they've used other standard of care, and they run out of options. And then they sign up the, their doctor, evaluate their case to say, you are a candidate for this drug candidate. Would you like to be enrolled? And this gentleman got enrolled. And the process took three months. Uh, and uh, it was a little bit delayed by COVID, but even during normal times, it, it, it's a couple months of uh, screening and testing. Now, what exactly delayed you with regard to COVID? The availability of the, the uh, testing facilities at uh, the hospital at MD Anderson, and the, the, the capacity was severely reduced because of COVID-19 by the reduction of workforce on site and so on. That the pre being prepared for Being prepared COVID. or being de redeployed to fight COVID-19. So what are the next steps? You, you're, you don't just try it in one person. You don't try it just no, we, do it willy-nilly. What do you do? We continue what's called a phase one. And in this case, because it's a cancer treatment, the phase one is what we call the open label single arm, meaning that all patient gets treated with the drug, and we will we will slowly increase the dosage to see it, what at what dose that it it works best, and at what dose it begins to have problems, and and the first several patients we have to go very slowly. We dose one patient, and then we do a couple dozen assays after that and observe the patient for a whole month before we go into the next patient. And an assay would be a test. They, right, an assay would be blood tests and, and the other diagnostic tests that we, we conduct. We do that before we dose the patient, 
and we repeat them after we dose the patient. I've been speaking with Dr. Patrick Yang, the chair and co-founder of Acepedia. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, writer, poet, writing critic, and writing coach Joan Gelfand joins me with both You Can Be a Winning Writer and her new novel, Extreme. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, Acepedia's Dr. Patrick Yang has just described having dosed their very first human with their new cancer drug at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. I wondered if they would do all their very careful first-in-human trials right there. We have three clinical sites currently. We will be expanding after phase one to more sites. So currently, we have one in Texas one in Virginia, and one in the Chicago area. Texas is on the move with respect to COVID right now. Could it be that this one patient will be all there is for a while? I hope not, because our drug is unique in that that the patient does not require ICU. The patient is treated as an outpatient. They come in for the infusion and they observe for a couple hours and they go home. So mm-hmm. the only thing that would slow down the trial is the pace, the the speed whereby the tests are done and whether the patient would feel comfortable to come in on the date it's scheduled. Now you mentioned earlier that uh, her two... Uh, related tumors are in many different cancers. How are you picking out which cancers you're going after? So our plan, the Acepodia's clinical plan, is that we'll take what's called the all-comers, everybody who has tumor that produces this protein, HER2, 
significantly will take that patient and try it on. So this is very different. See, you could tell by the way I was asking the question is, well, you got to pick a cancer. And yet at the same time, we know that we actually don't have a breast cancer, salivary gland cancer, prostate cancer. We have cells that got out of control in one part of the body, and they happen to be associated with that. Is that sort of the idea that it doesn't matter where the cancer is? your particular drug will go after it wherever it is in the body. Right. The cancer cells, many cancer cells, not all of them, many cells express this unique protein called HER2, which stands for human epidermal growth factor receptor. It is a receptor. It's a, it's a technical term, meaning it's a certain type of receptor that the, the cancer cells produces. So it becomes a target for us, regardless of whether it's produced by the breast cancer or the colorectal cancer. Wherever they produce this, we know that that's our target. Let's go hit it. That's what's behind our design. This is really unusual. (laughs) It's unusual. (laughs) And the the solution is elegant and simple because we produce the the NK. uh, We now have an NK cell line which means we have a cell bank that we produce off the shelf NK. We can produce several hundred to several thousand doses of this drug in a batch. The magnitude lower than the current state of cell therapy, which typically is autologous CAR-T, meaning that you use the patient's blood, re-engineer their white blood cells, and, and then infuse that back to the patient. First, it takes time. So between the time a patient is diagnosed until the patient gets the drug of a autologous CAR-T, uh, it, it usually, it's minimum 45 days they have to wait. It's a long time. A long time. Our drug, once you are diagnosed with HER2, expressing tumor, our drug could be used. Once we had the clinical data, well, our drug could be used right away. It could be used on anyone. On anyone that had the tumor expressing her too. Now and I'm then gonna, we're working on other targets. Now I'm going to out you, Dr. Yang. Most of the time in subjects like this, I, I speak with MDs or PhDs in life science. Your PhD is in engineering. Yes, I am. Now, I'm, the, I'm an oddball. Don't you dare say that. I've got a PhD in engineering. <laughs> so I, I studied uh, uh, control systems uh, specializing in robotics at Ohio State University. Uh, we were building robots, walking robots. And then I joined uh, the industry to work in aerospace. I've designed equipment control system for uh, shuttle and space stations. And then I did a lot of GE automation for General Electric under the Jaguar's days. So I would say I cut my teeth in manufacturing at GE. Uh, But Merck recruited me in 1992 to be their head of automation, uh, manufacturing automation. So I joined Merck. I came in from the outside. People were so eager to teach me because when they knew that I came from another industry, they assume I knew nothing, and I did indeed knew nothing about how to make drugs or vaccines. So everyone was so eager to help me. They made me a success. So had I come from another drug company, they would assume I knew everything, and nobody would have taught me anything. But here you were, an engineer, and you come into the medical life science area. 
totally different way of thinking. Right. It's totally different because I'm a double E, electrical engineering. I tend to think more logic. And my colleagues who major in chemistry and chemical engineering tend to think data. So if I walk into the woods with a PhD of chemistry and we saw a snake, I would probably say that's a snake. Either kill the snake or we run. And uh, scientists usually want to collect data to verify, it. is it really a snake? <laughs> and if it's a snake, is it, is it, is it poison? Or, uh, so, so, but it takes both kinds to be successful. So it's a lifetime uh, learning. So, so I was lucky to work for Merck, where they taught me everything about chemical uh, drug and vaccine. And I was lucky to be part of Genentech, a great biotech company and where they taught me how to uh, produce antibodies, uh, protein drugs. And then when after Roche bought Genentech, I was fortunate that Roche asked me to run the combined technical operation network. And I moved to Switzerland and lived there for four years and ran this pretty big uh, operation around the world of 28 sites and uh, 15,000 people. But I just, I kept... Uh, I just kept learning. I, I, I never stopped learning. So the journey had been from chemical to vaccine to biologics and then t- into cell therapies. And in cell therapy, I, was, I worked for Juno in, in Seattle. I was very excited about this technology. It's transformative for certain patients. But this first-generation product still has very clunky processes. It's, uh, it's very hard to make. It, 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 it has massive technology challenges, so and it's expensive. And I, as I mentioned, it also takes time between the point that that you draw the blood from the patient until the drug is prepared. It's by it's high tech. It's high tech stuff. You take the blood, you screen out white white blood cells, the so called the T cells, re-engineer it, and then grow it to a certain number, and then infuse it back to the patient. And it's truly personalized. It's one for one, one patient's material for one patient's drug. And as a result, even though it works, it's expensive, it's time consuming. So ASPODIA's technology takes it to a different place, simple, elegant, and low cost. Well, if we talked about NASA, that's where the engineers and the scientists come together. Without that, you can't come to the solution. And I think that's where we are in biotech. That's right. I think we are in what I would call a perfect storm, in a positive sense, in a, in a virtuous sense, uh, not a vicious cycle, but a virtuous cycle. So we are in a perfect storm, biotech perfect storm, because the high, the, the large-scale DNA sequencing, the understanding of the biology, the availability of all kinds of computing tools, um, the chip-based technologies, all of a sudden they they, they descended, they become available to us. And what we used to take months to do one experiment, now we do it overnight. And we used to communicate by letters that would take three months from a scientist in California to a scientist in Germany. Now we just text it and in second they get it. So so we are in this perfect storm that has such a a huge amount of energy that uh, that pushing us forward. I just wish that I have the the runway of the 25-year-old. Uh, I really envy them because it's going to be a lot of fun in this perfect storm. 
Dr. Yang, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back and see us again. It's my pleasure. I definitely will come back. Thank you. Dr. Patrick Yang is the chair and co-founder of Acepodia. More information is available at acepodia.com. That's A-C-E-P-O-D-I-A, acepodia.com. Now, for those of you who are sitting at home, finally getting that chance to start writing the book you've always wanted to write, or at least thinking about it, Joan Gelfand is a writer, poet, writing critic, and writing coach, a former president of the Women's National Book Association, and a book reviewer in the National Book Critics Circle. She's here today with her new novel, Extreme, and her 2018 book, You Can Be a Winning Writer. Well, Joan, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Moira. I'm glad to be here. Now, we'll be getting to your new novel shortly, but first I wanted to talk about all the people out there who've been working from home or sheltering in place or both, uh, or finally carved out the time now to write because they can't go too many places. And you may never show it to anyone, but as a, as a writing coach, what would you say to them? That uh, they should just plow through their first draft as quickly and with as much fun and delight as they could. Worry about the second drafts later, the third drafts. But if they really want to try to get out that story that's been bothering them for a long time or on their mind for a long time, just unedited. Don't edit yourself. Well, that's a good question. You know, is this uh, about those things that are in you that you're just ready to get out? Absolutely. I, I meet in my coaching business, I meet a lot of people who are like, oh, I feel so bad because I've been working on this book for 20 years. It's not unusual. And so people edit themselves in all kinds of ways. Oh, I was thinking about this too long ago or, oh, that nobody wants to read this. Just write it. Just write it and see what happens. I think it's very interesting because you did write. You can be a, a winning writer. That was just year before last, 2018. And uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what's a winning writer? Great question. I love it. Um, you know, I, I've been in the literary world here in San Francisco for a while. Um, I was the president of the Women's National Book Association, so I meet writers at all levels. I meet beginning writers, established writers. I'll meet a writer who has gotten a few articles published, and they feel completely successful. And I meet writers who have two or three books. They don't feel successful. So what is it that makes you feel successful? And what my theory is, is that it's about a community that you support, that supports you, about having a lot of confidence in your work. Um, it's more than just the publication credits. For some people, they would never feel like a winning writer unless their book was in the New York Times. Other people, especially now with the internet, there's people who sell 30,000 copies of their book. They never got on the New York Times. If you feel that you have an interesting story, it's worth it to try to get it out there. But it's uh, a better approach would be to say, I'm going to write this for my family as my legacy. And I meet a lot of people who are doing that. And yes, of course, they should put it either in a PDF or go to Amazon Create Space and you can make a book. 
Now let's get to your book, at least your latest book, uh, your new novel, Extreme. The book is is about a startup, a Silicon Valley startup that's building a game um, for extreme athletes. And Hope comes in. Um, Hope is from the wrong side of the tracks, but she's a superstar academically. And she's risen up in the ranks of a few startups. This is post the 2000 uh, dot-com crash. And during the uh, kind of fall down in 2000, she was doing some boring enterprise job. But then she gets recruited for this very exciting startup, and it's her dream job. So in goes hope. The company is called Future Shred. The book is extreme. And uh, what Hope does, which kind of makes the the book uh, totally exciting, is that she recruits her ex-lover. It's a smaller community than you think. And um, it's kind of exciting that way because people build alliances and and they continue to work together and job after job. And um, Hope brings in her ex and, of course, the sparks fly. I noticed, I checked, you you actually got feartoshred.com. You'll find your your book right there. But by shred, you don't mean shredding paper. Uh, shredding probably, uh, not probably, but in, in, uh, in the way that uh, guitarists shred and, and skaters and surfers, uh, when they do tricks, they call it shredding. So it's shredding in the uh, kind of uh, more edgy sense than paper shredding. But fear to shred is the name of the startup in the company, in the in the book. Now, this is really an interesting part for me. They always say, write about what you know. And um, I, I can't imagine that you would be shredding in extreme sports. <laughs> so <laughs> what defines what you know as a writer? Well, actually, um, you know, write what you know is a good uh, advice for a beginning writer. But once you're writing for a while, you kind of have to tell the stories that you feel passionate about. I, I think for me, that's more important is the passion. And I got very passionate about telling this story about Silicon Valley uh, for one really important reason, I was working in the corporate world and I started to meet uh, people in in tech. And uh, my mind was blown when I got to know people intimately that they were not gearheads. They were not flat. They were polymaths. They were renaissance people. They were not only designing the Mac and the iPhone, but they were musicians and artists and wine connoisseurs and classical music connoisseurs. And I got really excited. And I said, there's not that much coming out about Silicon Valley. There's not that much creative writing. Um, You know, there's books like uh, uh, Dave Eggers' uh, um, The Circle, which, of course, everyone's heard of. There's a few books that have come out, but the genre is just opening up. You certainly have this down as well. It's it's completely consuming in terms of mind share, your time, etc., if you're involved in any of these things. But for all the people that are creative, They're interested in many, many things, which ends up influencing their ability to create. You have to also think about the level of of intellect that is doing these 
breakthrough designs and coming up with these companies. I mean, I've met the people who designed the Mac. That energy uh, and the passion, and I always think that it's very much like writing, because when I watched my husband work in all these startups, um, the process that he was going through was very much similar to what I was going through writing books. I usually read these books and I'm like, oh, they're going to get to the tech and they're going to get it wrong or they're going to ha- not get to the core of the challenge. And you, ha- you got all the tech right. How did you do that? I didn't think it didn't take you for a techie. <laughs> um, well, I do live with um, an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while I have not been in the trenches in Silicon Valley, I've had a ringside seat and um Adam has, uh, he worked for Steve Jobs. He worked for General Magic. He's worked for numerous startups and big companies. He's now working for YouTube. And he, uh, one of the issues in the, in the book is that they have to grow Fear to Shred. They have to grow the app, the system, to, um, to scale. Because if they're going to become a TV show, they have to, it, it, you know, it has to grow. You got to jump mediums here. You got to, everything has to go in every way. Exactly. And so the, the kids that wrote the original code, they're scrappy and their code is no good. And so that's why they call in Doug, the, the professional, the as they call it, the adult the supervision. And uh, Doug helps to scale the um the, the the app and uh, so that they can bring on, you know, millions of users. And it's really not as easy as it sounds. It's it's really quite a challenge to to scale these companies. And it's actually where startups often get in trouble. And I think that goes back to writing. There has to be some relevant experience or metaphor that you can bring in so you can convey that. I even say in my book, You Can Be a Winning Writer, I say, there's a chapter, you are a startup. Because what uh, writers have to realize is that if they want to reach, if they want to scale their writing world, uh, they have to take some very harsh measures, just like when a company is scaling. I think the biggest thing, Moira, is that you have to put yourself out there often out of your comfort zone. And that's what I was saying before, the book is a metaphor, the game, the extreme gaming is a metaphor for the startup that um, we're pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, whether we're in a startup or we're doing an artistic project. And um, that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of self-scrutiny, you know, to see uh, why am I afraid of this moment? Well, honestly, sometimes it is jumping off the cliff in your base suit. (laughs) Sometimes it really is. We mean metaphorically, no lawsuits here. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it's just um, sometimes you have to stop even thinking and just plunge, whether it's going out in public with your project, with your startup, with your book, whatever it is, um, just close your eyes and jump. There's a number of aspects of Silicon Valley you've got, and I'm going to talk about a couple of them. One I'm very familiar with, and that's women in tech. 
Hope has to work doubly hard. Uh, she's she doesn't have an Ivy League education. She went to Cal. She doesn't have advanced degrees, um, and so she's got to fight really, really hard. So there's that aspect of women in tech. But I mean, any woman will tell you that she has to work twice as hard to get her results. The other thing is that at one point in the middle of the book, she is approached by the CEO to help him do something that she's very uncomfortable with. And it really brings up a lot of issues for her around loyalty, um, being on the inside circle. She's This opportunity that he's giving her will help her to break through the glass ceiling, but it's also a little bit of a deal with the devil. And so... Oh, darn those ethics. <laughs> there's a lot about business ethics Terrible ethics in, in life, great in books. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't want to do the spoilers. But, uh, no spoilers. No the Women spoilers. in Tech is definitely there. And, and um, uh, we, we give some shout outs to, um, you know, some of the more well-known women in tech in the book. Yeah. I have to also say that if I look at the people with the sort of the guts to make it through, and some of those turned out to be failures, but they they rode those things to the end to see, you know, me, they, they might be able to get it done. Sometimes they failed for reasons that had nothing to do with a great idea. Another technology could come along and scoop them and just their old technology just it just doesn't matter anymore. So there's a lot of sad stories there. But uh, it takes a certain ego. Um, and we we often refer to this, rightly and wrongly, I think, as the, the narcissistic side of Silicon Valley. Let's go there. You know, um, it's it's a little bit the ego, uh, I think my CEO in the book definitely plays the uh, narcissistic CEO that's just plowing forward, even when he doesn't know whether the company is going to make it and whether they're going to scale or not. Um, but he he also feels like um, he's doing his job, which is that these CEOs are hired to create value. And one of the themes in the book is, you know, um, authenticity versus monetary and commodity value. Um, the, the founders are young. They're in their 20s. They're like, they want to keep everything really cool. And the CEO is like, we got to go commercial. I, you know, I want to do this thing. I'm, I'm hired to create value. So in a way, it looks narcissistic from the outside, but in a, in a way, they're also doing their jobs. I kept thinking as I was reading your novel and knowing already that you're a writing coach, but also that you were a book critic. So you're writing a novel and you know people are going to review it. I mean, does this affect your writing as you're writing it? Daunting. 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 You're like, oh, now if I was if I was critiquing this, you know, and you change what you're writing. Totally. It's 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 hard enough for any writer, but when you're a book critic, it's really bad. But eventually it's like a painting. People say, you know, you don't really finish the painting, you just kind of let it go. And it's the same thing with your books. It's uh I, I could probably write four more versions of this book. But uh, it, it had 10, which Ernest Hemingway said, I write my books 10 times. Who has to write their books 10 times? Everybody doesn't have to do that. Uh, 
kind well, of I you sound do. Sound like that was a yes. They do. <laughs> so for you people getting over, okay, I'll write a second or a third draft ten times. Who has that kind of time? <laughs> it's time. It's time. And I, I wanted to say that before about the startups. I mean, there are moments, you know, I, I would say to some of my friends, I feel like I'm on a hero's journey. And they'd kind of give me a little hairy eyeball. But it's the same thing in a startup. There are moments in the creative process where you are kind of crossing the desert, where you're like, you know, I, I believe what I'm doing. I laid down the tracks but I'm not getting the uh, attention or I'm not getting the kudos that I want yet, or maybe a startup is having a hard time getting traction, as they say. Um, and it's the same thing with, with becoming a writer. You know, there can be dry spells and times when it's not going well. But guess what? On the other side, the people who persevere those times often are the ones that succeed. It's, it's, you lose a lot, a lot of folks in that dry area. What do book critics look for? A really high-level book critic is someone who's looking for plot lines to tie up, for um, what we're talking about, you know, is there poetry, is there metaphor, what's the quality of the writing? They're going to uh, have a checklist for what makes a really readable, fun, enjoyable book. Um some book critics will overlook one aspect, and if the other aspect is working, like the writing is amazing, but the plot lines don't all line up, um, you know, it, it's rough. Uh, book critics can go from easy go, you know, fairly easy going to very, very, very challenging. Well, Joan, this has been terrific. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you so much, Moira. It's a pleasure. My guest today is Joan Gelfand. Her new novel is entitled Extreme, and her 2018 book is You Can Be a Winning Writer, The Four C's Approach to Successful Authors, Craft, Commitment, Community, and Confidence. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.